Welcome back to Tune Into Nature. My name is Anna, your host for season six. In this episode, I have another one of my fellow student ambassadors, Maddie, joining me as a co-host here today, because in this episode, we we're talking about some pretty spooky stuff, and I might need a hand to hold, who knows? Maddie, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah. My name is Maddie. I will be your co-host for this episode. I use she, her pronouns. I am a double major here at Warner College studying forest rangeland stewardship with a concentration in forest fire science and natural resource management. Um, and I'm originally from Bettendorf, Iowa. With it being my favorite month of October, which houses my favorite holiday, welcome to our Halloween-themed episode. From creepy crawly bark beetles to zombie forest, this isn't a normal walk in the woods, but an informative trot through a haunted forest. Today we have uh, the horrifyingly amazing opportunity to speak with the director of the Colorado Forest Restoration Institute, or CFRI, Tony Chang. <laughs> um, Tony is a professor in the Department of Forest Rangeland Stewardship and is the director of the Colorado Forest Restoration Institute at Colorado State University. Tony's prim primary research interests are in forest governance, policy, and administration, with a focus on collaborative approaches to promote resilient social ecological systems linked to forest landscapes. In his capacity as director of CFRI, Tony oversees programs to develop, compile, and apply current knowledge through collaborative adaptive management approaches to achieve forest restoration and wildfire hazard reduction goals. With that, Tony, would you like to introduce yourself? Great, my name is Tony Cheng, uh, he, him pronouns. I'm originally from Washington State and I started here at Colorado State University back in January of 2000. And I've seen some frightening, frightening things happen to our forest since then. So this is a, a really wonderful thing. Yeah, well thank you for joining us here today. Um, to jump into the questions, can you briefly introduce yourself and your role as the director of the Colorado Forest Restoration Institute? Yeah, sounds good. So I'll talk a little bit about CFRI first. Uh, CFRI is a congressionally authorized program that was created in 2005. And that was at a time when, especially in the Southwest, Colorado, Arizona, New Mexico, these areas experienced some very large, severe wildfires. Uh, a lot larger than and more severe than uh, people had experienced and what a lot of the science record has shown. And that kind of freaked people out, right? And so Congress was eager to try to jump in and provide some solutions. And one of the solutions was, or uh, one of the problems that was being confronted was that a lot of the forest managers and fire managers um, were having a hard time like keeping up with a lot of the science around some of these big fires at the time, kind of the intersection of climate change, some of these forest health issues that I think we'll be talking about. And so they needed a entity to be able to compile and synthesize that science and make it usable and meaningful to managers in a much more efficient way. Uh, so we kind of help do that translation. We help do a lot of that streamlining which means that I direct a team of uh, full-time people. We also have a lot of students that we hire uh, to collect a lot of science information and make it translatable and usable for a lot of our manager partners throughout Colorado and the Inter Intermountain West. Thanks. So they'll do a lot of really, really neat work. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, forests play a vital role in our ecosystem. So what kind of motivated you um, to pursue a career in studying and restoring forest landscapes? Yeah, well, I so I have a, originally an undergraduate degree in political science uh, from a small liberal arts college in Washington State. Got really interested in just kind of reading about and thinking about policy and political systems and how people make decisions, how people try to work through conflict to, to reach some kind of conflict and good. Uh, I also grew up uh, doing a lot of camping and fishing and doing a lot of outdoor stuff in Washington, Idaho, Oregon, Montana. Um, so when it kind of came time after I finished my degree and I was kind of wandering around in that kind of post-graduation wilderness, um, kind of really asked myself what really gives me joy and passion. What, what's something that I really wanted to do? And a lot of it kind of brought me back to those early childhood and growing up in forested areas. And once I started looking around to both either jobs and graduate school, found out that there's actually a degree in forestry, which kind of is interesting because we're in a forestry program. I'm in a forestry program right now. So that really drew my interest in pursuing a master's degree in forestry, but combining the political science and the policy side. And so that was a really great uh, gateway, but certainly it's always been, um, it was important for me to be to do something that had a legacy and to be a part of something bigger um, than just kind of just doing a job and then going home and having you know kind of random hobbies you know kind of having a, a real passion towards conservation and doing something that leaves something for future generations which natural resources and forestry allows me to do I think that's a really similar passion or, a, you know, similar thing that a lot of Warner Rams have here um, is that like goal and passion to create, a, you know, a legacy that you were saying that affects others just than themselves and, you know, creates a more positive impact. Yeah. yeah. That's definitely something that drove me into the field of forestry, so. And that's what's great about this community, right, in Warner is that it's a really self-selecting group of students, faculty, and staff because we're all kind of drawn around a kind of a similar passion and interest. Because otherwise, you know, more than just making money and, and, and that kind of stuff, it's really, you know, doing something good for the planet. Well said. <laughs> all right. Uh, getting into the disturbances that we will be talking about today, uh, let's start with bark beetles. Can you explain the symbiotic relationship between bark beetles and the fungus they carry? And then um, kind of going into how the fungus aids in the decomposition of the trees and the development of new beetle generations. Yeah, so th now we're getting to really spooky stuff, yeah. right? The science, <laughs> spooky, the, the science of spookiness. <laughs> so, yeah, so the so bark beetles, there's many bark beetles um, in the world and here in Colorado and a lot of Western forests, they're native. They've co-evolved with our forests over tens of millions of years. So I think that's one important thing for listeners to know is that these beetles are important to the ecosystem. They've also then co-evolved with other pathogens that um, when combined, it, it creates a, a mortality agent that kills trees. And so these fungus are kind of, they're, they're, they're co-evolved and they, they enter the trees as these bark beetles 
bore into the bark and they're just part of their bodies but then once they get into the bark the the beetles are feeding off the sugars they're, they lay their eggs and their eggs also feed off the sugars of of the trees so that they grow and then you know become adults but then the fungus actually uh, creates what's called a blue stain uh, that also then infects the wood that also then cuts off the flows of sugar and other nutrients into the tree and that's also uh, a primary agent in what kills the tree is that it just stops that flow uh, of nutrients that goes up and feeds the tree so uh, when you have that both the combination of the beetles first of all attacking the tree infesting it with and laying their own eggs and then bringing in this fungus uh, that's kind of a double whammy that a lot of trees then can't uh, survive and then once the beetles hatch uh, the larvae hatch into adults they fly out and then they infect more trees and then they also carry that fungus into the bark yeah um these bark beetles have obviously been like a significant concern um, in all of our forests, especially across the western U.S. Um, but can you explain just kind of the ecological implications that they're having um, and like the role that fire is playing in that? Yeah, absolutely. So again, these beetles are natural, right? They're native to these ecosystems and to these forests. And so there's always been a background rate of trees that get infected. They usually are uh, trees that are older or they are grown in more kind of crowded conditions where they have to compete for nutrients and water and light. And so, there, and so anytime you get a, a prolonged drought in particular, then that stresses those trees and then makes them more vulnerable to a beetle infestation. And so you always kind of have that moving around the landscape. One of the things that's been different about the recent bark beetles that we have the mountain pine beetle and the spruce bark beetle. Um, and the mountain pine beetle infects primarily lodgepole pine and ponderosa pine, kind of the, the, the needles pines. And then the spruce bark beetle obviously infects the, the spruces, especially Engelmann spruce. Um, is that they are the, the area of land, the area of forest that has been infested by these bugs are usually are, are much larger. They're huge. And so the mountain pine beetle, for example, we've, is part of an outbreak that extended from Colorado all the way into British Columbia. So something like 40 million acres of forest land across the Rocky Mountain spine all the way up into Canada were, uh, were infected at the same time. That's pretty phenomenal. That's, that's kind of unusual and that's now we understand from a science perspective, there's a larger climate change signal, right? Warmer temperatures, especially in the winter, allows uh, more drought conditions to persist and it creates much more stressed conditions. Um, we also have a lot of forests that are in the same age class, right? About 120, 150, 200 years old. Uh, that's probably a signal from the Euro-American settlement settler colonization of this landscape uh, from about the, the mid-1800s uh, into the present. Uh, that resulted in a lot of clear-cutting for mining, agriculture, you know, um, railroads, those kinds of things. And so 
though all those fours grew up around the same time. So you kind of have both anthropogenic and kind of natural forces coming together to create a pretty um, continent-wide uh, ecological disturbance and change. Then you combine that with persistent drought, warming temperatures, more people on the landscape means there's more ignition sources, right? Campfires, sparks, cigarette butts, you name it, whatever uh, can start a fire will happen. And then you have all these forests that are have been dried out. They're much more available to uh, burn. Um, so if you think about throwing a um, like a green branch on a campfire versus a branch that's been dead for three or four years, that dead branch is going to catch fire uh, a lot quicker in general. And so you just kind of have this interplay between um, kind of having more fuel available for a fire to spread and, and kind of grow. And so and we're seeing that in, in a lot of places in the West as well. That, that's a lot to wrap your head around. There's a lot, There's a lot of, you know, combining factors, like you said. So, you know, finding a solution seems a little bit complicated, but kind of moves me to my next question. Are there any strategies being employed to manage um, the bark beetle's impact on Colorado forests, such as like preemptive management? Yeah, once a, I mean, these, the conditions that give rise to beetle outbreaks occur over decades, right? Like, as I mentioned, the outbreaks typically infest older trees, 120, 150, 200 years old. Uh, they typically then occur in more dense forests that, are, that when they experience drought become more stressed. One solution to get ahead is to, to kind of look at areas in your landscape that might be in a, a, a condition that might be more susceptible and maybe do some uh, some proactive thinning or some patch cutting to kind of clear out and create some new growth. So that's one option. Um, but once you get an epidemic, like when the population really explodes, there's really not much to be done. One of the things that we're finding out afterwards when we do have these zombie forests, right, that have been killed, is that, that um, you know, you still have cones, pine cones or spruce cones that still have seed, but the question becomes uh, how long are those seeds viable for, you know, when they drop on the ground to sprout new trees. Lodgepole forests, as uh, many of us in Warner know, generally need fire to open up the cones. A lot of them are serotonous cones. So we're starting to see fires interact with these beetle-killed forests, but because these forests have been dead for about 15 years, we don't know how viable those seeds are. So they might open up and those seeds might not be viable, or the cones may be so dry that those cones burn up and they kill all the seeds. So one of the preemptive things to look at it might be, it's preemptive in the sense that we're trying to figure out after the beetle kill and after a fire, can we look at areas that we might need to replant? because we're not gonna have that seed source left, right? The fire burned too hot we're, or we're lacking a seed. So we can do some of advanced analysis to look at areas that might be more susceptible to forest loss that might not have that seed and get ahead of it to think about 
where we, we want to plant. Maybe we might even think about what kinds of species we want to plant for more of a climate adaptive future. You kind of touched on that like zombie forest thing and kind of how bark beetles are playing such this like such a pivotal role in kind of where forests are going. Um, can you just explain that term of zombie forests and like the context in forest ecology? Um, and then how do forests transition into this, this state of zombie Forest. So I, you know, I think I think zombie forest may be maybe a, a, one of those anthropomorphizations of uh, of of nature that might not necessarily translate. Um, one of the important roles of a bark of these beetles is that it creates room for the new generation of forests to grow. Right? So you kind of have to have the older mature trees eventually die in order to create the space and the seedbed, the little seedbed for the new forest to, to regenerate. So it's part of the cycle, right? And so we as humans might be disturbed by the fact that there's like these kind of gray four ghosts out there of former living forests. But if you actually look, if you, if you, if you take your gaze from the gray standing dead forest and you look down a little bit lower, we oftentimes see a lot of green uh, new forests coming back. And so in some ways, those zombies are um, kind of birth mothers for the, the new generation of forests and that kind of needs to happen. So maybe we can think about these zombies as more helpful, the helpful ghosts, um, rather than the harmful ghosts. Yeah, kind of, you know, circle of life you know everyone or everything has an end and a beginning and so you know kind of shifting that view yeah, I, I agree with that. Yeah, and, and the same thing with fire as well, right? We need, a lot of these forests do need fire. It can be really scary for us. We kind of think about, you know, maybe we've been enculturated by the Bambi movie that had the, for, the fire raging through the forest and all the animals running out. But in fact, those animals, uh, sometimes they can come back to even a, a, a more vibrant forest, you know, after it regenerates. So, you know, we can think about these things in different ways and I think that's what we teach at Warner is to look at these processes through a more science perspective and give us a different appreciation of what that cycle of nature really looks like. What are key signs uh, or indicators that a forest has become a zombie forest and are there specific tree species or regions that are more success susceptible to this phenomenon? Yeah. Yeah, we're certainly seeing a lot of, because of climate change, we're seeing a lot of uh, forests experience different kind of stress. Um, so one example is in the some of the highest elevation uh, where we see like species like bristlecone pine. Bristlecone pine are among some of the oldest uh, tree, living tree uh, species. I think some of the oldest bristlecone pines on record in the Sierra Nevadas and California are like 4,000 years old. Here in Colorado, we have bristlecone pines that are like 2,600 years old. So like wrap your head around that, right? That's it's really phenomenal how long lived these these trees can be. And yet a lot of these uh, a lot of these um, trees are dying out because of climate change. Uh, 
Um, and so I think those are, you know, at the highest elevations, those are trees that are really vulnerable and susceptible to, to being those zombies. Uh, we're starting, we're seeing mountain pine beetle actually infect these forests. Um, and that's kind of unusual. We haven't seen that in, in kind of our ecological textbooks. And now we're seeing, you know, kind of these forests being susceptible. So we know that there's something going on. Um, and so I, I'll, I think every major uh, forest type and tree species has a vulnerability, especially as a result of kind of these climate signals creating that stress. So one of the things that we think about uh, in the department and certainly at CFRI is, okay, if that's, if there's, if there's going to be some vulnerabilities and these, tr the, these tree species aren't resilient to future climate change, can we get ahead of it? Can we think about more adaptive strategies like planting trees that may be more adapted, more suitable for drier, warmer conditions, um, and start interplanting them as we do our management activities. Um, we can think about doing more, especially in our drier forests, do more, you know, thinning out and prescribed burning so that they become more resilient to future fires. So there's a lot of proactive ways in, we can, in which we can keep forests growing and green, um, but we also continue to have to monitor you know, which of those might end up being those, those, those living zombies. Um, but not lose all hope that, that we can also get ahead of the game. We have a lot of strategies that we can employ ahead of time in kind of knowing where these might occur. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of like technological advances have really, you know, facilitated a kind of a better way of dealing with these yeah. around the forest, yeah. which is, you know, as society just progresses, I feel like, no, there's hope to be positive that even more technology will advance. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the kinds of technologies that we teach in classes here at Warner, like, you know, GIS and using more of those kind of spatial informatics to determine what are area, where are areas um, that we can model uh, that might be experiencing warmer and drier. We also know that there's probably areas that are going to be also maybe a little cooler and wetter. And using those tools, uh, students can forecast where places may be more vulnerable and susceptible to being zombies and where we might be okay. And so that also helps us make economical decisions about if we have limited resources, it might be better to put our money over here than over here. And we can use science and technology to help make those proactive decisions. Totally. Um, so we've kind of touched on how these zombie forests have like come to be. And um, we're definitely getting to that point where it's like, okay, now what do we need to do to actually kind of handle the situation, um, however that may be. But what do you think steps could be for individuals, communities, and policymakers um, to contribute to this like conservation effort um, of forests and like aiding in their restoration? Yeah, well, there, there's so many things that just kind of regular people in their everyday lives and, and choices can make. Um, you know, I, I think one of, the, I work a lot in forest fire. 
And, you know, one of the oldest messages that Smokey Bear gave us is, you know, don't be the person that starts a forest fire by leaving a campfire unattended. Those are still really important, simple messages for all of us to take into account. And there's just about 80%, at least 80% of all forest fires are ignited by humans. So think about that, right? Yeah. If you can cut that even in half, you you have allowed you know a lot of these forests. You can you can save a lot of the existing forest or mitigate a lot of that risk to the existing forest. Um, another thing is just to listen to podcasts like this and become educated in what's going on. There you go, right? And becoming educated in what's going on, right? There's so much information out there and sometimes there's a lot of confusing information. And so, you know, I think looking for reliable sources, uh, I would like to think that universities are very well trusted still as sources of information and looking for resources about what's going on in our forest. Should I be worried? Uh, what are our managers doing? Doing, you know, get educated in terms of what managers are thinking about um, on a lot of our public forests. Um, there's opportunities for the general public and just community members to get engaged in what, um, what like the U.S. Forest Service is planning and get involved in their planning and decision-making processes. They provide a lot of great resources too. And so a lot of it starts with education and awareness. Um, and then I think there's also a role for all of us to limit our contributions to climate change uh, in terms of, you know, our own consumer choices, in terms of, you know, ways that we can make choices that limit our carbon emissions and be more sustainable. Uh, one of the things that we don't often talk about, but it's certainly a, a campaign here in Colorado, is um, we have a lot of choices of where to buy, like our forest products, paper or wood and those kinds of things. And there's still, you know, those wood products that are produced right here in Colorado. And that supports local Colorado businesses that in turn goes back to being able to uh, invest in forest management. And so that's another easy consumer choice for that we can make every day and kind of reading labels, where is this made? I'm supporting a Colorado business that goes back into supporting Colorado forest management. Yeah. That's Absolutely. a really good example. Yeah, and then just, you know, expanding your awareness, I think is totally one of the most important things of just knowing what's going on, you know? Because if, if you don't know what's going on, you can't do anything. I know, and then you get spooked. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jump scared, <laughs> even, yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, Lastly, for our listeners who might be inspired to get involved, what advice would you give um, individuals interested in pursuing a career in forest conservation and restoration, and what steps can they take to make a meaningful impact in the field? Yeah. Well, I, you know, like I described in my introduction, I didn't even know there was a professional field of forestry. And so I think that again is a really good start is to especially for maybe kids that might be interested in you know thinking about a major but just even the general public is knowing that there is a profession and getting to know those folks you know there's the colorado state forest service they're a arm here they're a program of warner college uh, their job is to provide service and education and outreach to the citizens of colorado in all matters of forestry so they have great 
resources, get to know your local forester, the Colorado State Forest Service. Same with the U.S. Forest Service. U.S. Forest Service, um, their your taxpayer dollars goes to you know paying them to produce education and outreach uh, programs and resources. Um, there's a lot of volunteer activities right now, uh, especially after a lot of these big fires. There's a lot of tree planting uh, activities. There's a lot of need for that. And so just getting involved, uh, getting your coworkers, your friends and neighbors to sign up for one of these volunteer activities. Uh, just here in Northern Colorado, uh, around Fort Collins, uh, we have numerous nonprofit organizations like the Coalition for the Poudre River Watershed. I know that they just had a big tree planting uh, volunteer weekend. They just planted like over 550 trees up the Poudre River Canyon uh, with uh, one of the local businesses here in town. So I think there's just, there's so many opportunities for uh, folks to get involved. Another thing that um, is also occurs is, is that there are ways in which different public and private organizations are conserving forest land through conservation easements or purchasing land for conservation. Those are great causes to support if you're interested in conservation of these kind of rare and especially lands that are kind of vulnerable to development. So once you build a house and streets and all that stuff, you kind of lose the forest forever. So sometimes the best thing we can do is to just keep forest as forest. Yeah. All right, well, that kind of wraps up our general questions that we have um, for you today, but mm -hmm. we do have some rapid fire slash fun questions. That okay. Include, so get ready. Okay. Um, favorite forest? Western Larch. Oh, wait. Favorite forest type? Western Larch. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> favorite forest? Oh, favorite forest. Like an actual place? Yes, like destination-wise that you like to go. The Jedediah, Jedediah State Park, uh, Redwood Forest in Jedediah State Park in Northern California. Yeah, I, I would bet. I would bet. Yeah. No, those California redwoods are like my absolute favorite. They are. But what is your favorite tree? My favorite tree... I would have to say Western Larch. <laughs> yeah. And that's so that one come in. The reason for that is it is the only deciduous conifer tree, mm -hmm. right? It turns a beautiful bright yellow. Uh, and, they're, and they're also, at least here in the lower 48, they're only found in northern uh, Idaho and west, northwestern Montana. So you go into some of these landscapes and when you see the Western Larch turn during the fall, it's like these bright, it's like aspen here, oh. right? They just light up the hillside with this bright yellow against this kind of, you know, backdrop of green and it's just fabulous. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a good choice. Yeah. <laughs> Adding that one to my bucket list. Yes. Be going up there. Yeah. Um, do you have a Halloween costume picked out yet for spooky season? I have a couple that I um, are kind of my go-to's. Um, but uh, so uh, that'll have to be a surprise. You have to come and trick or treat at my house to actually see what it is. <laughs> Can you give us a hint? <laughs> it has it, it has to do with a um, uh, during the Middle Ages. There were people that walked around uh, 
picking up the dead. And uh, I forgot what they were called, but they, they have a special mask that has a beak on it. And plague doctor? Plague doctors. Thank you. And so I have a plague doctor outfit okay. uh, that I've acquired from my son. He had the original plague doctor, but it's such a cool costume yeah. because when you open up the door for trick-or-treaters, right, you have this black hat with this really freaky looking mask and just like this black cape. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's pretty intimidating, I must say. Yeah, yeah. But you know, all they're looking at is the bright, shiny candy in the bowl. They, yeah. you know, but it's kind of fun. You gotta make them work for it. Yeah, it's kind of fun. It. Yeah. 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 When, when you said that, I, the like, um, the like grave people are like the like body people that they come around. You made me think of like Monty Python and well, the Holy Grail. Oh yeah. And I, I watched that, that this weekend. Yeah. Bring like, out your dead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I was like, that's niche. That's niche. That's very niche. Yeah. So the plague doctor is 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 one of my go tos, and then I have other like just kind of goofy outfits, like kind of recycled from um, the new Belgium's uh, Tour de Fat. Oh, nice. So I have you know kind of boas and funky glasses. Awesome. So I haven't, it could be a fun kind of goofy thing or the plague doctor. I haven't decided <laughs> yeah. what the mood is. We'll get there when we get there. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, last one. Favorite Halloween candy? Um, Kit Kat. Good choice. Good choice. Yeah. All right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we want to thank uh, Mr. Tony Chang so much for joining us here today. Uh, your insight was absolutely amazing. Um, no other person could have answered this spooky episode like you did. So, well, thank, thank you. you very much, and I appreciate the opportunity to sit in on the podcast. Of course. That's all we have for this episode of Tune Into Nature. Tune in next time for our next episode that I'll leave on a cliffhanger. We'll see you next time on Tune Into Nature. Good job. <laughs>